exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. This fall, as we do each fall, we're taking some time to look through our values here at Pearl Church. Gratitude, inclusion, integration, peace, renewal, and transformation. These are our values. And I love that last word, transformation. Sometimes at staff meetings, Mike will ask us to reflect on a value that's sitting well with us personally, that that is resonating with our lives. And I almost always pick transformation. Uh, It's been my life's work. Uh, I studied philosophy. I've studied spiritual direction and spiritual formation. And I've always been curious, how do people grow? How do people change? But, you know, recently I've been reflecting a little bit on on how that got started, on why I started being so interested in change. For me, my interest in transformation started when growing up in a conservative Christian world, I realized I was gay. And the only options that I saw available to me were to somehow stop being gay. And so I wanted to know, well, how do people change? And, And off I went on this quest for what leads to transformation. Well, a few days, uh, sorry, a few decades, not a few days, a few decades (laughs) later, and many books and many tears later, I finally came to the point of affirming my sexuality. Um, But you know, that's not the best reason to get started. And I wonder how much of my interest in transformation over the years has been because I didn't think that who I am could be included in my community and my family. And I wonder sometimes how much that is true for us who gather here in a church on a Sunday morning. How often is our drive to seek out growth, to seek out spiritual transformation, uh, really an expression of a belief down somewhere inside that who we are might not be acceptable? might not be included. If I asked all of us to take a moment and close our eyes and think of a way we think we ought to be better, I think we could all do that. And we'd all feel a little bit worse about ourselves. You see, the word transformation has a troubling edge to it. I mean, compare it to integration or inclusion. Everything belongs. Everyone belongs. And now that you're here, please change. Right? How often have we sat at tables, literally or metaphorically, where we felt that our inclusion was contingent on our transformation? You can belong, but only if you change. You can be here, but only if you conform. 
I think for many of us, those are tables that with great courage and great heartbreak and at great cost, we've chosen to walk away from. Now, to show my hand a bit, I don't think that this is what transformation is really about. Uh, I don't think transformation means you're not good enough as you are. But I think it's good to name that when we list our values, gratitude, inclusion, integration, peace, renewal, and transformation, that last one can sometimes feel like one of these things is not like the other. So. What if we take some time this morning to breathe new life into transformation, to find a way to understand it so that it sits next to our other values naturally and feels just as inviting and warm and good as integration and inclusion do? In our values about transformation, we write, Jesus opened the eyes of the blind, raised the dead to life, and spoke of being born anew. He exhorted all to grow, and his death and rising embodies the pattern of God's transformational activity in the world. We, therefore, value awakening, transforming, and becoming truly living beings. We, therefore, value awakening, transforming, and becoming truly living beings, truly living human beings. Transformation isn't the voice of shame that haunts us, telling us we're not enough. Transformation is the voice that says, awaken to what you are. Become yourself. Truly live. And what is truly living? Well, Jesus summarizes the divine instruction as, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Truly being human is love love for the divine, love for the community around us, and love for our own selves. So, become yourself, awake, alive, truly live. To live is love, and what is love? Well, try this on. To love is the capacity to know and delight in something for what it is for itself. Not for what use you could make of it, but just in its sheer being itself, to delight in it. Not for what you wish it were, but for what it really happens to be. We love our neighbor when we learn to see them beyond the idea we had of them, when we appreciate who they really are. We love our enemy when we pause and we look again and we see past our grievances to their humanity. So. Become yourself awake, alive, truly alive. To live is love. To love is to know and delight in something for what it is. And that's at the heart of inclusion and integration, isn't it? We can't include someone without seeing them. Or what we're doing is really just including our idea of them, but not who they really are. We can't integrate a part of our life that we haven't allowed ourselves to see really see with compassion. So transformation then is to become yourself awake, alive, truly alive. To live is love. To love is to know and delight in something for what it is. And this is the capacity that allows us to participate in gratitude, inclusion, integration, renewal, and peace. 
And this brings me to our gospel passage. This is one of my favorite little snippets uh, in the gospel of Mark. Jesus heals a man who can't see, uh, but when he asks him how the healing went, can you see, the man has an odd reply. He says, oh, well, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Uh, and I love this. It's kind of like Jesus is like fixing the aerial antenna on the TV, like, is good reception now? How, how about now? Uh, he touches his eyes again, and the man sees properly. Because transformation is about growing our capacity to see and love others. And this is an infinite task. Not because we're bad, but because there's always more to see. You always have the opportunity to look again and to see more and more clearly. To me, this gospel passage is about the nature of transformation, that we are invited to have a curiosity to keep looking, to keep looking again. So then, if transformation is about growing the capacity to look with curiosity, to see the world in the light of love, well, then what does transformation look like? Well, there's lots of ways to answer that question. Lots and lots and lots of ways. Uh, but today, I want to share from three women whose writings have shaped my understanding of transformation very deeply. Uh, a French mystic, a British novelist, and an American hermit. Uh, take these as parables, as images of what transformation can look like. So let's start with the French mystic, Simone Weil. Uh, Simone Weil uh, was a Jewish intellectual in France who lived from 1909 to 1943, and she tells us that transformation can look like solving a math problem. Okay, stay with me. That's not exciting to me either. Uh, I don't love math. Uh, she wrote, uh, she engaged deeply with Catholicism, uh, considered herself to have a vocation of an outsider. They wrote extensively about looking to see in the light of love, which she calls attention. Anytime we attempt to see something clearly as it is, we are exercising attention. And so she gives, as an example, solving a math problem. If we have, she writes, no aptitude or natural taste for geometry, this doesn't mean that our faculty for attention will not be developed by wrestling with a problem or studying a theorem. On the contrary, it's almost an advantage. If we concentrate our attention on trying to solve a problem of geometry, and if at the end of the hour we're no nearer to doing so than at the beginning, we have nevertheless been making progress, every minute of that hour in another more mysterious dimension. Without our knowing or feeling it, this apparently barren effort has brought more light into the soul. The result will one day be discovered in prayer. Now, as someone who doesn't enjoy math, no one told me that my math homework would make me love better. But here's the point. Any time that we exercise the capacity, we, we wrestle to see something clearly as it is, we are growing our capacity to get outside of ourselves, to look again, and to love. The invitation to transformation is happening all around us in math problems, in gardening, in writing, in our work, in carpentry, in learning a language, in piano lessons and soccer practice. Anytime we're wrestling with something before us, trying to see it clearly and justly and respond 
adequately to what it is and what it demands of us, we are exercising the same capacity that allows us to love, which is to see and delight in others, not as we wish they were, but as they really are in front of us. So we don't necessarily need spiritual practices in order to grow. We just need to engage our lives, our real lives, with attentive presence wherever we are. So, the French mystic Simone Weil taught me the task of attention is available everywhere. Now, the British novelist Iris Murdoch helped me see what this looks like in human relationships. Murdoch herself was deeply influenced by Simone Weil, and as a philosopher and novelist, she applied this idea to its most difficult arena, human relationships. For Murdoch, uh, attending to a math problem or to art is a good preparation, uh, but the really tricky work of transformation is in human relationships. And this is because we do, we love our partners, we love our friends, we love our parents, we love, we love people, right? Uh, but all of that gets tangled up in what we really would like them to be for us, and what we would like them to do for us, and how we'd like their attitude to change just a little bit, and then it'd be great. We get all tangled up in how we wish they were and how we believe they are. And so for Murdoch, it's an infinite task to come and see and to love another person for who they really are. In one of her essays, she uses her skill as a novelist to, to throw out another parable for us. She writes, a mother, whom I shall call M, feels hostility to her daughter-in-law, whom I shall call D. M finds D quite a good-hearted girl, but while not exactly common, yet certainly unpolished and lacking in dignity and refinement, D is inclined to be pert and familiar, insufficiently ceremonious, brusque, sometimes positively rude, always tiresomely juvenile. M does not like D's accent or the way D dresses. M feels that her son has married beneath him. Time passes, and it could be that M settles down with a hardened sense of grievance and a fixed picture of D, imprisoned by the cliché, my poor son has married a silly, vulgar girl. Uh, this is so British, isn't it? I love it. <laughs> However, the M of the example is an intelligent and well-intentioned person, capable of self-criticism, capable of giving, now listen, careful and just attention to an object which confronts her. M tells herself, I am old-fashioned and conventional, I may be prejudiced and narrow-minded, I may be snobbish, I'm certainly jealous. Let me look again. D is discovered to be not vulgar, but refreshingly simple. Not undignified, but spontaneous. Not noisy, but gay. Not tiresomely juvenile, but delightfully youthful, and so forth. This, Murdoch suggests, is the kind of moral work that we are all invited to do all of the time. We develop pictures of one another. We develop pictures of ourselves. And transformation is like a mother-in-law who chooses to look again, to give careful and just attention to see who this person before her really is. We may come to realize that our view of others is as if we see people like their trees walking. We see, but we don't really see them. And this is an infinite task. 
there's always more to learn. There's always an opportunity to look again and to see them more justly and more lovingly. So, one final parable. We've heard from the French mystic and the British novelist, now the American hermit. Annie Dillard is an American writer who, when she was young, went to uh, spend a summer in a cabin by a creek by herself. She went with the purpose of seeing, seeing as well as she could what was around her and writing what she saw. And along the way, she learned to stalk muskrats. Transformation is like stalking muskrats. In her book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, Dillard has a chapter called Stalking about how she learned to see these muskrats down by the creek. Uh, it took her years, she writes, if, she, if at first, if she managed to even see one, uh, sh she would betray her presence and it would scamper off in fear. So she learned to wait and sit very still on a bridge for a muskrat to appear along the creek and it would come along and, and just as it would go under the bridge so its little eyes couldn't see her, she would quickly whip around and position herself on the other side of the bridge so that she could peer at it very close when it emerged. And she would just stay very still and then watch this muskrat. But one day, she writes, I lost him for a minute when he went under the bridge. He didn't come out where I expected him. Suddenly, to my utter disbelief, he appeared on the bank next to me. I could have touched him with the palm of my hand without straightening my elbow. He was ready to hand. He used his four paws to plick, pick clumps of grass extremely tidily. I could see the flecks of his narrow wrist. I could see the water-slicked long hairs of his coat, which gathered in rich brown strands that emphasized the smooth contours of his body, and which parted to reveal the paler, softer hair like rabbit fur underneath. About this experience, Dillard wrote, he never knew I was there. I never knew I was there either. For that 40 minutes last night, I was purely sensitive and mute as a photographic plate. I've often noticed that even a few minutes of this self-forgetfulness is tremendously invigorating. I wonder if we do not waste most of our energy just by spending every waking minute saying hello to ourselves. What I've learned from Dillard is that attention, like stalking a muskrat, happens best when we can quiet ourselves and become still and present enough to see what we're seeing. Right? This is the point behind practices like meditation to help us learn to stop chattering our judgments to ourselves so that we can be still enough and forget ourselves for long enough that muskrats will wander right up and perform their unexpected, miraculous selves right under our noses. Transformation isn't about being something other than what we are. Transformation, rather, is the invitation to grow in our capacity to love, which is to see and delight in the people and the creatures and the goodness and the divine all around us, just as they are. This transformation, like math problems, is available everywhere around us, not just in special spiritual activities. Like a mother-in-law trying to see justly, it's especially present in every human relationship. And like stalking muskrats, it happens best when we learn to be still within so that the unexpected can emerge.
There's so much more to say about transformation, but what I'm hoping we see this morning is that above all, transformation is about learning to see what we see. Because when we become present and learn to see and speak honestly from our history and our experience and our perspective, what happens is that transformation doesn't lead to more and more conformity, but instead to more and more of each of our beautiful difference, our beautiful perspectives coming to expression in the world. You'll see things I'll never see. You'll delight in things I'll never even think to look at. And then we'll share in them together. This is especially so when we've been taught to believe that our vision and our voices are not valued. Transformation isn't shutting our experience down to conform, but rather growing the capacity to really see what we see and to live in response. So yes, transformation is happening when we grow our ability to see others, to allow them to show up as they are and when we listen to their lived experience. But also, transformation is available to us when women or people of color or sexual minorities or anyone who's been told that their vision and voices don't matter are empowered to see what they really see and to speak their lived experience. So it turns out that transformation is not an individual, but a communal practice. Because we listen to one another. We look again based on what one another say. And we speak what we see. And that way, as a community, we transform together. This is all transformation because it leads to an increased capacity to be present and see what's there to be seen and to offer ourselves in love. Transformation is to become yourself, awake and alive, to truly live. To live is love. To love is to know and delight in something for what it is. We're invited to grow in this capacity as we engage our daily lives, as we look again and again at one another, as we quiet ourselves down and let ourselves be present to what we see. All this grows the capacity that allows us to participate in gratitude, inclusion, integration, renewal, and peace. Will you pray with me? God, open our eyes. May we see the divine and the good and the human and the true all around us. Help us to see what we see. this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.